All right, well, let's stand, begin our time of worship by hearing from God's word. Psalm 108 calls us to worship. It says, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Our God has answered us. All of our cries for mercy and salvation have been met with a rowdy yes and amen in Jesus. So let us rejoice with all of our being, with our hands, our heads, our hearts, and rejoice in the name above all names.
choice. Yes, well, it's good to be rejoicing with you, brothers and sisters. You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Um, what a great opportunity to sing with all of our souls together and praise our Lord and God. My name is Brandy Beck. I serve here at Desert Springs with a women's ministry. And if you've been around for a little bit the last few weeks, hopefully you've heard about our women's book studies that we're holding this summer. We have 12 different groups reading 12 different books. But this morning, we want to highlight this one, Gospel Fluency, by Jeff Vanderstilt. Um, in our recent sermon series, we've been hearing a lot about the gospel and talking about how important it is for us to know it and to believe it and to live our lives in light of it. And that is exactly what this book is about. I want to read a short quote to you from the introduction. If you were to ask many Christians what the gospel is, the answers would sing a tune of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. The accuracy of these answers would lead you to assume that there is application until you pose a follow-up question such as, how do you apply the gospel to the everyday stuff of life? Then blank stares and fumbling words might reveal the disconnect many Christians have between the gospel and its power, not only to save our souls, but to change our lives. And we know this disconnect, don't we? We know what it's like to wonder how the hope of the gospel and the truth of it applies to the messiness of our everyday lives. And that's why we're really excited about this book. Its entire aim is to help us grow in fluency and not only articulating the gospel and sharing it with others, but also to grow in fluency and applying it to that moment by moment of our circumstances and our relationships. So if you are a woman, high school age and up, we really hope that you would consider joining us this summer to study this book or one of the other many books um, that we'll be reading through. Okay, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that is the gospel. We thank you for the gift of your son, who through his life, death, and resurrection has brought salvation to your children, granting the complete forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with you, our God, and adoption into your family. Father God, we pray for the women who will be leading these book studies we pray for the ladies who will be participating in these studies, and we ask that through these groups, you would bring encouragement, exhortation, and equipping, and we ask that you would grant deep fellowship and sweet friendships among these women. And we ask, Father, that you would be with us now as we turn to you in worship and praise and as we sit under the preaching of your word. Be magnified in our hearts and minds. Open our eyes to the truth of the gospel that gives life to those who are dead, that sets captives free, and that grants us grace to truly live as those who are free, free to live lives that bring you honor and glory and that are poured out in love and service for others. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Let us stand and we'll continue in a time of prayer. But before we do, a quick word on how we confess corporately together. 
When we do these corporate confessions, whether they're through a song or a prayer that one of us leads or as we're about to do out loud together, uh, we need to remember the corporate nature of these prayers. Like everything we do when we come together, it is not just about me or just about you, but about us. So as we pray these prayers, they may not check every sin on your individual list of confessions, but these are the kinds of sins that we should confess corporately. These are the kind of sins that we can and have been guilty of. So let's take that opportunity again and consider us, not just I, but us as we pray and confess. So it'll be on the screens. I'll start and then we can respond together. Lord God, you are faithful in all your promises and are completely trustworthy. Time and time again, we have seen you fulfill your word, but we fear whether you'll deliver on your promises to us. You assure us and you know our needs and will provide for us, but we are anxious about tomorrow and worry about what we can't control. All your promises find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ's life, death, and resurrection but we doubt whether his work is enough. Lord, forgive us for trusting in our own strength rather than resting in your promises. Help our unbelief. Thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. Now let us continue that confession in song. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into thy freedom, gladness, and love. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness and into thy help, out of my wanting and into thy wealth, out of my sin. Into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come into the glorious gain of thy cross. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of her sorrows and into thy bond. Out of thy storms and into thy calm. Out of distress into jubilant soul. Jesus, I come to thee. Jesus, I come to thee. Out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Jesus, 
David, I'm one of the non-staff pastors. Please join with me in prayer. Yes, Father, to those of us who belong to Christ, our hope is only Jesus. When our race is complete and we stand before you, we will agree with you that all glory goes to Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. Your word says of us that we who are in Christ are not of this world and that our citizenship is in heaven. We long for the heavenly kingdom where Christ will reign. Yet, Father, we acknowledge that earthly nations can be a gift from your hand. We are thankful today for the country in which we live. We are thankful for those whom we commemorate who even died in the defense of this nation. And we are thankful for the many veterans, even in this church, who have sacrificed in so many ways in military service. We are thankful for the freedoms that we have, and we take time to pray for the salvation of the leaders of our country, of our president, of our vice president, Congress, and Supreme Court. Father, I must admit that I am oftentimes tempted to despair when I see the decay in our society. Help me, help us to not lose heart. 
Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus day by day, walking with him, and that he is not only in heaven, but he is with us. Indeed, Father, he is in us. Father, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. He is precious to us. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand now and rejoice in how it is so sweet to trust in him and his grace and to sing for more of that grace. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know the Jesus, oh, for grace to trust 
church. If you've got a Bible, we're in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. You can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen. You can follow along that way. So Galatians chapter 5. And if I haven't met you, you're visiting. My name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the minister of theological training here at DSC. We're really glad that you're here. You're jumping into a study that we have been in in the book of Galatians. And uh, this is an important chapter in this book, this is kind of a turn towards the end of the book. Paul's going to be uh, really landing the plane for two more chapters, uh, but it's it's a, a good good time, good passage to study this morning. So what we're going to be in is uh, chapter five, verses one to six. I'll read all of those verses out loud now, and then we'll hear what God is trying to teach us from these verses. So everybody there, Galatians chapter five, we're in verses one to six. Paul writes. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time. God, we thank you for this word and what it teaches us about Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace now in this time to trust in him more and more, even some of us for the first time. We ask for your glory. Amen. So not too long ago, we had some family uh, visit from out of town, and they have two little boys about my daughter's age. My daughter is four. And they've never been to the Southwest before, so we thought we would go on a hike, take them into the mountains. And, and we got there, we got to the trailhead, and we stopped, and we, we got down with the boys, and we say, look, we have cactus here. You don't know what that is, but you don't want it. Okay, they will hurt you if you touch this, this cactus. So, so here's what you do. Just stay on the path. We're going to be on the path. There are not cactuses on the path. They're off the path. If you stay on the path, you'll have no problems. Got it? Got it. Okay, let's go. So we started hiking, and sure enough, two minutes in, the littler boy, he sees something in the woods that he, that he wanted to see really bad, and so he just made a beeline off the path right there and got a cactus right in his shin. 
And he's stuck there, you know, he's stuck and she's, she's screaming and the dad has to go off the path and, and get him and we're pulling needles out of his pants and the dad is like, we warned you, we told you there were cactuses. And I was thinking, man, this is the difference between boys and girls, right? I mean, my daughter has been on a hundred hikes and she has not once been cactused and we were here for two minutes, two minutes. When we get back on, the, back on the path and we start going again. And, and what was interesting was how the older boy responded to this. He saw what happened to his brother. And so what he decided he was going to do was he got out in front of all of us on the path. And he was going, cactus, cactus, watch out, cactus. And we're like, bro, we know. You don't got to, if you stay on the path, they're not going to jump out at you. They don't bite you. Stay on the path. But he couldn't get it. He was obsessed with the cactuses from, from that point on. All he could see were the cactuses. And my daughter is like, what is with these guys? She's just hiking, she, you know. And we had, a, we had a fun time that day. It was, a, it was a fun story. We still laugh about it with our family. We did not make it to the top by any means. But I would say that neither of those boys had as good a time on that hike as they could have. To put this in terms of our passage this morning, both of them had experienced a kind of enslavement. This is what Paul has been talking about. The first was enslaved to his own desires. He was ruled by what he wanted so much that it just led him off of the path of good sense, and he got hurt. But the other boy was enslaved too, not to his own desires, not to what he wanted, but he was enslaved to cactuses. He was enslaved to the rules. He had turned what was meant to be helpful guidance into the point of it all. We were on that hike to look for cactuses. We were on that hike to see the beautiful things that were around us and hopefully to make it to the end. But he was enslaved to the rules. This is the point of this passage that we're in this morning. Paul is actually going to speak to both of these kinds of enslavement and especially to that latter kind, to an enslavement to the rules. But really what we see most of all in this passage is what the point of this all is, our life in Christ, which is freedom. So we'll look at this passage in two big parts. Verses one to four is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time together this morning. And this passage, verses 1 to 4, is a warning. And then verses 5 to 6, our second point, will be waiting. So warning and waiting. So look at this first point, verses 1 to 4, warning. Verse 1, again, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. We would call verse 1 a bridge verse and the way that this book is structured. What that means is it's a verse that kind of serves as both the conclusion of what preceded it as well as the transition into what will follow. So if you remember what came right before chapter 5 verse 1, Galatians 4, 21 to 31, this is what we looked at on Wednesday night at our Lord's Supper service. So if you weren't able to join us, I would encourage you to listen to that sermon. This is Paul going into the allegory of Sarah and Hagar. And he's saying Sarah and Hagar represent two covenants. And this is what he's been developing through this whole book. There is the covenant of, or the old covenant, which is the covenant of works by the flesh. And Paul says that that covenant is slavery. But in Christ there is a 
new covenant, a covenant by faith and through the Holy Spirit. And he says that that covenant is freedom. So chapter 4 ends, if you look at verse 31, with this. So, brothers, or brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And then you hear how that leads right into verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. I think you can actually see this beginning verse in chapter 5 as sort of the summary or maybe even the climax of the whole letter up to this point. This is what this has all been driving to. We are free in Christ. We have been set free. We have been set free from our sin and the domination that it has over our flesh. We have been set free from the condemnation that our sin brings. We have been set free from trying to justify ourselves by by obeying certain rules or trying to prove to God somehow that we ought to be righteous. We have been declared righteous in Christ. And so we are free, free from condemnation, free from judgment, free from fear. We are free in Christ. And so what is so surprising about verse 1 is that after Paul declares us free, he gives us a commandment. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit. So back to this idea of verse 1 being a bridge from what preceded to what follows. This is the turn in the letter. After this point, Paul is going to turn to the portion of the book of Galatians where he is giving us lots of commandments, lots of imperatives, as we would say. So everything up to this point in the book has been Paul telling us what the gospel is and who we are in light of the gospel. And now he turns to telling us what the gospel commands, therefore. And I wonder if that lines up with how you think about freedom. That somebody would declare you free and then tell you that there are rules to be obeyed. I think for us, good Americans, when we hear freedom, we think freedom means nobody can tell me what to do. Freedom means complete autonomy. I get to decide what I want to do with my life. But is that really freedom? Is that really freedom when you are the one who gets to decide what you do, what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong? You get to set the rules and the rules are ever changing. No, that's not freedom. That, in fact, is what led us into slavery in the first place. Our living according to our own desires, whatever we think is right, that's what led us into our slavery to sin and all of the consequences that come with it in the first place. That is, that is what Christ has set us free from. Christ has set us free not to rule ourselves but to be ruled by someone who only has our good in mind. Christ has set us free to be ruled by someone who only wants to preserve our freedom. Paul's actually a lot more emphatic about this point in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6, verse 16, he writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Isn't that an amazing statement? A beautiful paradox that Paul lays out before us. You have been set free to become a slave. But a slave of what? A slave of righteousness. A slave of everything that is good and right and proper that leads to flourishing and that leads to God's glory in this life. You have been set free to become a slave of God. That's what is at the heart of this command that he gives in verse 1. For freedom you have been set free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has reached down and pulled us up out of the ditch. He has set us back onto the path. And now he's saying, stay there. Stay on the path. Don't wander off. This is the way that you need to go and I will lead you in walking in it. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to slavery by going off the path again back into obeying your own desires, back into following your own will. Don't go off the path that way. But also, Paul is saying, don't don't go off the path. Don't submit again to slavery by submitting to legalism. And this is really the slavery that Paul has in view here. This is what the Galatian church has been doing. This is why Paul wrote this letter. There were false teachers that came into this church and and they were leading these baby Christians astray, but they weren't leading them astray into blatant immorality, into all of the wicked, vile things that used to mark their lives before they knew Christ. They're not leading them into that kind of sin. No, they're leading them into the sin of legalism. And saying that instead of trusting in Christ alone, you need to add to that all of these rules and regulations, the Mosaic law, specifically circumcision. And this is the first time, I don't know if you've noticed this, in verse 2, this is the first time Paul actually addresses circumcision head on. We've been talking a lot about it. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, it's clearly been the issue, but Paul hasn't mentioned it directly by name all the way until chapter five. That's interesting in itself. It took him four chapters of getting their theology right before he was ready to address their problems. You've got to have this right understanding of the gospel before you can apply it to the pressing needs of life. But now here he addresses the issue head on and he says that to submit to circumcision which is a broader way of saying to submit to the requirements of the Mosaic covenant would be to put a yoke of slavery onto yourself. Do you know what a yoke is? I remember I had a, a friend once, he was my roommate and, uh, and actually I had the privilege of leading him to Christ and, and then I kept on discipling him and, and we got to a passage about a yoke and I said, hey, do you know what a yoke is? And he goes, yeah, an eggs. No. <laughs> No, we don't, have, we don't have yoke anymore. We grew up in the city, at least. A yoke is, is something that you put on the back of an animal, like an ox, and it's a burden to them. It's how they pull something heavy. And this is interesting that Paul uses this word yoke because the rabbis at this time, they actually described the Mosaic law, the Torah, as a yoke, as a good yoke, but that was the way that they talked about it. It was a yoke. And Paul says, it is a yoke, 
but it's not a good one. It's only a burden. It's a yoke of slavery. The Apostle Peter actually says something very similar in Acts chapter 15. He says that the law was a yoke on the neck that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. It's a yoke that we can't, we can't carry. And you know both of them have echoing in their hearts and in their minds the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the yoke that Paul is holding out to the Galatians, the yoke that they received. And now they're trying to put this other yoke on top of the light and easy yoke of Christ, the burden of Christ. They're putting the burden of the law onto themselves. And Paul says that's slavery. You've been set free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. That word again is really interesting. These little details in this letter, they're so important. The word again. How can he say, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, speaking of circumcision? Remember, these are Gentiles. These were Gentiles that came and heard the gospel. They weren't obeying the Mosaic law. They weren't circumcising their children when the law or when the gospel came to them. So how can he say they would be submitting again to a yoke of slavery? Well, when the gospel came to them, they were, not, they were not obeying the Mosaic law, but they were still enslaved. They were still enslaved to their own passions and to their own lusts, but more than that, I think they were, they were enslaved to pagan religious practices. They had their own way of trying to justify themselves with what they understood to be the higher power in the universe, and so they had their own kind of laws, their own kind of regulations, their own kind of sacrifices, their own kind of customs that they thought by keeping those rules, it would somehow commend them to the gods. They were set free from that enslavement. And Paul says to submit again to the Mosaic law would be the same thing. That is startling for a Jewish man to say that now that Christ has come, now that faith has come, as he describes it at the beginning of chapter three, to submit again to the Mosaic law would be no different than to submit to pagan practices. This is what he calls the elementary principles of the world in chapter four. Any kind of self-justifying system, whether it looks Jewish or Greek, is slavery. And Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore. Look at verse two. It begins with the word, look. Do you ever say that? Do you ever say that to somebody? You only say that when you're really serious, right? Look. And that's how he's starting this. And it gets more emphatic. He says, look, I, Paul. He's trying to bring all of his apostolic weight to bear on this statement. Everything that he established in chapters one and two. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. There's only two systems 
and they are mutually exclusive. You can trust in Christ to work on your behalf to justify you before God, or you can trust in yourself. But Paul is saying that if you trust in yourself, then the burden of perfection is entirely yours. Only perfect people can be declared right with God. Heaven is a place for only perfect people. And if you are saying that I want to perfect myself, that I want to prove myself perfect according to the standard of God's holy law, then you are obligated to keep all of it. Now, it's not just the bad stuff. It's not just avoiding the things that God's law says you should not do. It's also doing perfectly all of the things that God's law says you should do. So if you say, I want to be justified according to the law, then you have to be perfectly loving, perfectly generous, perfectly joyful all the time. And anything less than that is less than good enough to be declared right with God. And as we've all confessed this morning, none of us has met that standard, right? None of us is perfect. And even if you said, I've done all, I have avoided all of the bad things, can you really say that you have been a perfectly loving person in this world from the moment you were born? Of course not. None of us can. And so that means we owe a debt. It means we have broken the law. Remember what Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. This is why Jesus came. Because all of us born under the law are born under a curse. We cannot keep God's holy and perfect righteous standards. We are not perfect. And so we are cursed. And God the Son came and lived as a man perfectly. He succeeded in obeying God's law in every way that we failed. And yet, chapter 3, verse 13, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who what? Is hanged on a tree. Christ, though he was perfect, took the curse that you are under onto himself and died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. When he died and when he was raised, what he did was he imputed or he gave his perfection to you, to anyone who would receive it, who, anyone who would just say, I want that. It's a gift so that you are perfect in Christ. But if you're gonna trust in yourself, if you're going to say, no, 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 I can do it alone. I don't need Jesus and his perfection. I really think I could hit that standard by myself. Paul says in chapter 2, 21, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why in the world would the Son of God take on human form and die on a tree if you could do it yourself? You can't. This was his grace to us, And so that's why Paul says here in verse 2 of our passage, if you accept circumcision, if you accept any kind of law as a means of commending yourself to God, of earning your salvation, 
well, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. And you're on the hook for your perfection or lack thereof. That's where he gets to in verse four. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's heavy. And this verse is, this verse is tricky, okay? So we're gonna, we're gonna have to think a little bit to understand what's going on here. I think it's right to interpret verse four is not talking about a, a statement of fact, but it's Paul stating a general principle. Okay, so we know from the rest of this letter that Paul thinks he's writing to Christians. He believes that these people have really believed the gospel. They have been united to Christ. They have been saved. And so what he's not saying is, you have fallen away from grace. I think we could translate this, or we can understand this verse as saying that if you would be justified by works of the law, then you will be severed from Christ. You will fall from grace. And now I know that there are, I know this church, and there are some theologically astute brothers and sisters in this church. And so when I say that, I, you will be saying, but wait, I thought we believed in eternal security. I thought we believed in what's called the perseverance of the saints, that that if somebody really is a Christian, if they really have believed in God, well, then they can't lose their salvation. So how can Paul say that if you submit again to this yoke of slavery, you will fall away from grace? How do you reconcile those two things? And let me say, I think the Bible is absolutely clear that a real Christian cannot lose their salvation. And this is one of the the greatest truths that we believe. We praise God for the assurance of salvation that we have in our security in Christ. Just consider Jesus' own words in John chapter 10. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Never means never, y'all. Amen? And Jesus goes on, no one will snatch them out of my hand Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And Paul, in the book of Ephesians, he speaks of our being sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. He sees that as one of the works of God, the Spirit, that he seals us. He ensures that we will not be lost for the day of of redemption. And remember, Paul said in chapter 3 that the Galatians had received the Spirit. So Paul thinks the Galatians are sealed for the day of redemption. And I could go on about all of the places where the Bible talks about our assurance of salvation and our eternal security. But yes, we do believe that those who are truly elect of God and saved have put their faith in Jesus. They will never be lost. No one will ever take them out of Jesus' hand. So that means if you're wondering that if someone professed Christ at some point in their life and then they denied Christ later, we wouldn't say that they lost their salvation. What we would say is that they were never saved. This is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2. They went out from us. They left us. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So someone who is truly elect of God and is saved will continue with the church, will continue in faith until the day. Until the day they stand before 
their Lord. Okay, so we, we need to know that this is what we believe so that we can try and understand what in the world is Paul saying here then? You'll be severed from Christ. You will fall away from grace if you submit again to the yoke of slavery. And as I said, this is, this is a little tricky. There are different ways of interpreting this, but let me tell you what I think is the best way to understand what Paul is saying here. Because yes, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe in our eternal security. But we also believe in means. We believe that our sovereign God uses sovereign means to accomplish his promises. Think about just in the same way of how you came to believe the gospel in the first place. As we said, and we've looked over several times in this study, God chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. But that doesn't mean that you were just magically saved like that. No, God used means to bring the gospel to you. He, bring, he used a person to preach the gospel to you so that you believed. He used means. And in the same way, God uses means to keep his saints in the faith until the very end. Think about you're on a hike, and it's a treacherous hike. This is, this is not one that you would bring little kids on. There are places on this hike where you could fall off the edge and die. There are means of you staying on the path. There are means. One of those means is the path itself, right? It's clearly marked. It's well-maintained. You know where you should put your feet. You know that it is safe to stay here on the path. But another means, perhaps, would be a guardrail in a place where it's especially tricky and you might slip. There's a guardrail to keep you from going over the edge. Or another means might be you're hiking with a group of people and one of your friends sees that you're about to go where you shouldn't go and so they grab you and they pull you back from the edge. Or another means would be a bright yellow sign that says, warning, don't go past this point. Means like that are what God uses to keep his church in his grace. We have a path to walk on. God has told us where to put his feet. He has given us his word as a guide. Remember, this is the third use of the law that we talked about. He has given us his word. And more than that, he has given us his Holy Spirit. Love what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, that we obey from the heart. That's a new covenant promise. We have a new heart that can actually see the path and want to stay on the path. We are free from our bondage to sin and so we can stay on the path. But this is a treacherous life. We might be in positions where we are in danger of falling, falling away from grace, slipping away from grace. And so God uses other means to keep us. Sometimes he uses a guardrail in your life. Have you ever had a moment where you wanted something so bad and it's like God is just slamming that door in your face. No matter how many times you try to go that way, it just is prevented. You ever had that? Anybody? That may have been God putting a guardrail in your life and keeping you from going in a direction where you would have lost your salvation. And he says, nope, they're mine. I'm not going to let them go that way. That's God's grace to you. When we stand in the new heavens and the new earth and look back, I think we'll see lots of guardrails for even things that we knew were right, things we knew we wanted, but God says, no, that was not safe for you to have. And just like in the hiking party, we have the church. 
We have good friends. Do you remember we looked at this on Sunday? We have good friends that grab us and keep us from falling over the edge. You, church, are the means of keeping one another in God's grace. And often God will use bright yellow warning signs. And this verse is one of those signs. This verse is one that says, warning church, if you go past this line, if you go back into works righteousness, you will fall to your death. Don't go there. And Paul is writing this verse and lots of other verses in the Bible do this, okay? Hebrews famously has five what are called warning passages, passages that are confusing because they talk about Christians and how they might fall away from their salvation. But, but Paul knows when he writes this letter that if there are genuine Christians in Galatia, which he believes that there are. If you look at verse 10, he says, I'm confident about you. So he knows that he's writing this warning passage. He's holding up that bright yellow sign and that they'll listen. And this word itself, God's word is living and active, right? It's powerful. This word itself is accomplishing the purposes of keeping us secure forever. And so we gotta read our Bibles. If you're not reading your Bible, then you might be missing some bright yellow warning signs. And you might be less equipped to keep your brothers and sisters safe on the path that we're on. But this is a warning that Paul is giving to the church. Don't submit to legalism. Because to submit from legalism would be to sever yourself from Christ. And then Christ is of no advantage to you. So we need to consider then, what does it look like to submit to that yoke of slavery? What does it look like for a Christian to fall into legalism? And, and this is tricky. It's not as tricky as you know, just going off the path into blatant sin. God has made the path very clear for us. We know what's wrong, okay, we can, we can avoid that. But legalism is tricky because often faithfulness and legalism outwardly look the exact same. And so you can even deceive yourself by being legalistic but thinking that you're still walking on the path, that you are still going in the direction that you need to be going in, but in your heart you have actually submitted to the yoke of legalism. So how, how do we understand when we have fallen into legalism? And there's more that we could say about this, but, but I want to think about it from one angle. So take a common example. There are lots of movies and TV shows, and books, and music that are sinful. They're sinful. They're not helpful. They don't produce virtue. They don't point us towards God. They only serve to tempt us. They're cactuses. And Christians are right to avoid those cactuses. If we want to stay on the path, we want to stay away from those things, that's right, and we should. But what can happen in our hearts is if we start to focus on the cactuses and not the path that we're on, we have fallen into legalism. So what started out as a good thing, identifying these things that are not productive, that are sinful, that are not in accord with God's commandments and, and avoiding those things, suddenly we can, we can become obsessed with those things itself. And the avoiding those things, we turn into the whole point of our being. And so we obsess over what we should and shouldn't watch. And we obsess over this not only for ourselves and for our families, but also for other people. 
And that's really what gets us worked up, talking about these things and how bad they are. This is the focus of our meditations when we're studying our Bible. These are the applications that come to our mind. We're thinking about these things that we are supposed to avoid. If you asked your kids, based on your example, what their understanding of the Christian faith is, they would say, oh, it's avoiding the bad stuff. That's the point. Cactus, cactus. It starts to make us feel like we're being productive in our faith. We can look at all of the ways that we have succeeded in avoiding cactuses. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It makes us feel good like we're right with God or when we fail. It makes us feel like we're all wrong with God, like our righteousness with God is dependent on how good we're doing. This comes an excuse for us to judge others, to hate others. All of this has submitted to a yoke of trusting in the flesh. And go back to Sarah and Hagar, what we looked at on Wednesday. The promises of God, these spiritual promises, just cannot be obtained by the flesh. But you're trying to do that. But what I'm trying to get at and why this is so tricky is it is right to say that that's a cactus. It is right to have a a, a reverent fear of avoiding those things and saying, "This this is wrong for me, but it's wrong to turn a means into an end. And that, I think, is a great definition of legalism. When you turn the means of our pursuing righteousness into the end itself, that becomes the point for you well, then you have submitted to the yoke of slavery. We could come up with a lot of other examples. Reading the Bible is a very common one. Reading your Bible is the means of pursuing your right relationship with God. It is how we know about God, how we know about God's salvation in Christ. It's about how we know what the path is. Reading the Bible is essential. I would say that you ought to be meditating on God's word daily, somehow. Whether that's reading it, listening to it, you've got it memorized and you're just thinking about a few verses on the way to work, you need to be in God's word. And even having good structures or plans for that. My wife and I this year have been using the McShane reading plan and we've been going through that and it's been so helpful to just tell me every day, okay, what do I need to read? But understand that's a means of something so much more important of talking to God, of hearing from God and pursuing faithfulness. But if I turn that means into the end, I was talking about this with my wife and she had a good example. She said, it would be like if you planned a date night with me and you put me in the car, you took me to the restaurant, you sat me down, I ate the food and then I said, so we're good, right? Like, we did it. The date night's not the end. It's not literally eating the food. What? This is time for intimacy and fellowship with my wife. That's what I'm pursuing. But but if I make it all about the means, we can do this about our doctrine. Having good doctrine, reformed doctrine. Hey, I'm the minister of theological training. I love doctrine. But that's a means, brothers and sisters. That's not the end. You can do this about how you choose to educate your children. You can do this about your political convictions or your views on justice. 
what it means for you to dress modestly, how you spend your money. These are all good things. Do you see that? These are not, I'm, I'm not saying that we need to just run right into those things. They are cactuses. But legalism is often at its heart just a form of idolatry. You have started worshiping the rules. You have started worshiping the means. And you've forgotten about the ends. So if that's you, if you're hearing this and, and you're thinking, I think that's in my heart. I think I am submitting to that, to that yoke again, that burden. I've confused the point of all of this. What do I do? Have I fallen away from grace? No. Be warned. If you're convicted right now, verse four is doing exactly what it is supposed to be doing. You're close to the edge. Repent. Repent and stand firm again in the gospel. Stand firm again in faith. And more than that, remember what the end actually is. This is where he goes in this closing section. I promise this will be brief. Verses five and six. Waiting. Point two is waiting. Verse five, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So the, the phrase through the spirit and by faith here, they're linked together. They're, they're a package deal. This is the new covenant. It's by the spirit, it's through faith, and it's contrasted with the old covenant, which is through the flesh. The old covenant is marked by works, but life and faith is marked by waiting. Do you see that? The word waiting. Waiting for Paul is always eschatological. That means it's always looking towards the end. It's always looking towards the last day. It's always looking towards heaven, or better to say, the new heavens and the new earth. So Paul is saying, rather than trying to work in this life, rather than focusing so much on this life that you lose track of the ends, he says, no, 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 keep your eyes fixed on the end and wait for it. That is the path that we're on. That's where we're going. And what does he say is at the end? The hope of righteousness. That's what we're waiting for, brothers and sisters. The hope of righteousness. That is the vista that is at the top of the trail. Righteousness in the end that we will one day stand before the judgment seat of God. And all of you who are trusting in your works, in your flesh, and that day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, he's gonna hold up that record of your imperfection, the record of your debts, as Colossians 2 calls it, and he's gonna see you are not perfect. You cannot enter into my heaven. And you'll be cast out, you'll be severed, Forever, But for those of us who have trusted in Christ and in his work on our behalf and in his perfection, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, God's gonna say, hey, that record of debts, it was nailed to the cross. And you are righteous. I declare you righteous. And not just you privately. I'm gonna declare you righteous to the whole world. You are perfect in Christ. Enter in, saint. Enter in, to the new heavens and the new earth. Enter in to the joy of your master. Enter into this perfect place where there are no more cactuses and rejoice. Rejoice forever and ever. And in your rejoicing, God is 
glorified. He will be glorified and you will be glorified in Christ. Remember, this is the whole point of what we're going is that, is that Christ be formed in us. Well, in that day, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. In that day, it's finished. In that day, we hope. And so we wait for that day. That's why we stay on the path That's why we follow Jesus on this course being more and more like him because that is what waits for us at the end. And so that's why he can say in verse six, for in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's not about Circumcision, it's not about uncircumcision. And notice that Paul in that, he's not saying that circumcision is necessarily wrong. This is not the point, okay? You wanna get circumcised? By all means. You wanna circumcise your children? Go for it. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, nor is there anything inherently virtuous in not being circumcised. Both of those can be means to an end, but they matter not in the grand scheme of things. What matters? is being in Christ. You see how it starts there? In Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus if you have believed. And that's all that matters. Martin Luther commented on this verse, and he says, in this one verse, verse six, the Apostle Paul excludes all those who want to produce their own salvation, saying, no acts, no service, no worshiping, no kind of life in this world, but only faith without any trust in works or merits avails before God. Only faith, sola fide. But then look at how verse six ends. It's not just faith, is it? Faith working through love. So Luther goes on. In this verse, Paul also excludes all slothful and idle people who say, if faith justifies us without works, then let us do nothing, but let us only believe and do what we like. But no, Paul says otherwise. Although it is true that only faith justifies, after it has justified, it is not idle, but occupied and exercised, working through love. Love for who? Our friends. Everybody in this room, one another. Calvin said what Luther said much more succinctly. It is faith alone which justifies, and yet faith which justifies is not alone. And we'll call this just a teaser, because as I said, back to this idea of it being a bridge, this is where we're going. We are saved by faith alone. Now what does that faith that is never alone look like? It looks like love. It looks like love and standing firm. So stand firm, brothers and sisters, in the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving us apart from our works. Thank you for saving us through Christ and our faith in Christ. And God, I pray that our time together this morning would have served the purposes for which you sent your word out, that if any of my brothers and sisters in this room are being tempted to fall into legalism, 
Lord, warn them and lead them to repentance. And if any of my brothers and sisters here are are being tempted to, to just wander off in complete disregard of your commandments, Lord, warn them and lead them in repentance. God, for all of us, give us hope in Christ and in that day where we will be declared righteous before the whole world. And until then, Lord, help us to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And let us stand and respond, respond to our freedom in Christ. Now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief? His Father, Son, for us. And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin? Now cancel that the cross. This is our hope. Precious blood, 
Don't fear your banishment from Sing it out, church. Since Jesus set you free. sound of saving grace are you hearing that are you hearing that call you haven't put your trust in Jesus yet but you're hearing it now Christ died for you and you believe that's true or you want to believe that that's true if you if you hear it respond accept it and we would love to help you do that we'd love to know that you have received this free gift of grace in Jesus Christ. So we'll have, like Drew said, some pastors up here at the front. I'll be here up front. I would love to talk to you, to pray with you, to answer questions that you have. And for you, church, I hope this passage has shown you that, that you are the means that God will use to preserve and to save his church. It's all in Christ, it's all by faith in Christ, but God has chosen in his infinite wisdom and love to use you to do that. So even use this time now to check on each other, make sure nobody's wandering near a cliff's edge. But even more, I wanna remind you that, that God will use you always to be the means of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. So as you go out from this place, you are going out with Christ's charge to make disciples, to be the means that God will use to save his elect. And it's not just here in Albuquerque, not just in your homes and not just in your workplaces, but it's to the ends of the earth. And so that's why I want to remind you that we've got Missions Emphasis Week coming up, beginning June 12th and that week after. And I want to especially remind you that we have a new uh, addition to Missions Emphasis Week, which is a Saturday seminar. So this is on Saturday, June 12th. We're gonna have Matt Ellison, who's a member here, and he leads a missions organization. He's gonna be speaking on why do we send missionaries to difficult places like North Africa and the Navajo Reservation. Why do we do that? So he's gonna speak on that, and then also we're gonna hear from one of our own missionary families, the Seas, who are now back in the States. They're gonna be talking about their work there in North Africa. And so if you haven't yet signed up for this, sign up for this. Come June 12th and hear about why we go and make disciples and maybe God will even use that to show you how you can be his means of making disciples. 
Well, church, as I send you out, I do so with these words from the book of Jude. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.